Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good morning, everyone. As one hurricane watcher put it, 25 million people along the eastern seaboard are looking down a gun barrel. Hurricane Gloria is not only the storm of the day, but possibly the storm of the century for the Northeast. In September of 1985, with 150 mile an hour winds, a massive hurricane was barreling down on America's eastern seaboard. Gloria, a Category 4 storm, had been gaining strength for days and appeared to be heading straight for Norfolk, Virginia, and the studios of televangelist Pat Robertson's Christian Broadcasting Network. We just are asking God to put up a wall in the Atlantic. This is a monster. Jesus Christ is bigger. He's still the wind and the sea, and we want to pray. From the set of his internationally syndicated TV show, The 700 Club, Robertson ordered the menacing storm to be gone. In the name of Jesus, we come against this hurricane Gloria and we command those wind storms to be still in the name of Jesus. And we command that that storm would continue to go farther to the north and the east and go harmlessly out into the Atlantic Ocean without any damage to life and property in the name of Jesus. Over the next few hours, Hurricane Gloria shifted direction and veered north. At 9 o'clock last night, something unusual happened. The storm, in a sense, broke off, and it was a miracle. But while the storm missed Virginia, it devastated Long Island, New York, and crushed parts of New England. President Ronald Reagan declared several counties in the Northeast a federal disaster area. Later, Robertson thanked Jesus and told his viewers their prayers had worked. But added, those up north must not have harnessed the power of God. Now, if those folks up there had truly been praying and rebuking it instead of saying, well, Lord, don't let the storm hurt us, I don't know what they were praying. But I do know that wherever you live, you don't have to be the victim of nature and storm. Robertson declared that Gloria's sudden shift away from Virginia was proof of God's desire for him to run for the presidency of the United States of America. How important was Hurricane Gloria in this crystallization process? Well, it was uh, extremely important because uh, I felt, uh, interestingly enough, that if I uh, couldn't move a hurricane, I could hardly move a nation. Robertson formally launched his campaign on October 1st, 1987. Can we see America become the greatest nation on the face of the world? Yes. Can we have jobs for our young people? Yes. Is it possible to restore the industrial might of America through moral strength? The answer is yes. I call on all of you to do it together with me. Up until this point, evangelical Christians had leaned Republican in their voting habits, but without any rigid political identity. They were not yet a powerful political bloc that exercised their considerable might inside the GOP. They just went and voted and that was it. Today, evangelicals are synonymous with the Republican Party. No group is more important to its election success. But 30 years ago, the GOP was still a business-first country club party. That changed in 1988 with Pat Robertson's presidential campaign, which was a coming-out party of sorts for evangelical Christians. This is the story of how Pat Robertson helped move evangelicals from their church pews and into the political arena. 
and how it changed the Republican Party forever. History may be written by the winners, but in American presidential politics, history is often shaped by the long shots. God bless you, and God bless America. These are the stories of the campaigns of presidential primary losers, the candidates who didn't make it onto the final ballot but still changed how we see America. No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born, but through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment, an age of jobs, and peace and justice. These are the stories of America's presidential primary battles, the contest for the most powerful office in the world. I'm Connor Powell, and I'll be your host. For the last decade, I've covered some of the world's most violent conflicts and turbulent international elections as a foreign correspondent. Now I'm back in the U.S., digging into the fascinating tales of campaigns that bring a kaleidoscope of color to our black and white history. You're listening to Long Shots. Today, Pat Robertson, God's chosen candidate. I would like to thank the evangelical and religious community because I'll tell you what. Today's Republican Party may be led by a twice-divorced serial philanderer with a history of exaggeration. But long before evangelicals lined up in support of Donald Trump, they were actually crucial in electing the first born-again Christian president, a Democratic, Southern Baptist, Sunday school teacher from Georgia who professed to have a personal relationship with Jesus, Jimmy Carter. The most important thing in my life is Jesus Christ. I believe that I can be a better president if I am elected because of my faith. In the 70s, it was not normal for Christians to be involved in politics. That is Mark Nuttall. He was Pat Robertson's campaign manager in 1988. In the 70s, he was a political operative working for the Republican Party and says neither Democrats nor Republicans really knew what to make of evangelical voters because, for the most part, they stayed out of organized politics. When we would poll churches uh, through the 70s and 80s, less than half were registered. You had a lot of pastors out there still saying, you know, politics is not our game. But with Carter's candidacy, many of the some 40 million evangelicals in the country, that is, Protestants who believe in the necessity to be born again, did show up, believing his Christian faith would guide the Georgia Democrats' policy decisions. The emergence of evangelical Christians on the political scene was such a surprise, Newsweek ran a cover story hailing 1976 as the year of the evangelical voter. However, Carter's evangelical faith was progressive, rooted in the idea of racial and economic equality with a deep concern for human rights. Our commitment to human rights must be absolute. Our laws, fair, our natural beauty, preserve. The powerful must not persecute the weak. If it sounds a little different than the evangelical movement of today, that's because it is. Carter's progressive vision of politics was way out of step with where the majority of evangelicals were in the 70s and where they were heading. Most saw America going down a path of moral decay and ruin. Remember, in the 1970s and early 80s, 
America was battling over civil rights, school prayer, equal rights for women, school desegregation, and the legalization of abortion. Meanwhile, the Cold War and the battle against communism loomed large over everything. So, as quickly as the evangelicals arrived on the political scene in support of Carter in 1976, they disappeared, turned off by Carter's support for gays and lesbians, desegregation of schools, and for abortion rights. By the late 1970s, Nuttall says he started seeing small groups of evangelicals turning up at Republican events. I was running campaigns around the country, and I noticed that there were these Christians showing up in congressional campaigns around the country. Oh, 25 or 30, but still a a large enough number at meetings to, to have their own caucus. I'm noticing these Christians show up. And the candidates would pull me aside. These are establishment Republican candidates would pull me aside and say, do you have any idea who these people are? I go, well, no, I really don't. After observing this a half dozen or so times, Nuttall began to reach out to them. I'd go over and talk to them. And finally, I just said, what are you doing here? They said, well, we're worried about the morality of the country. TV preacher Dr. Jerry Falwell, whose doctorate is honorary, not earned, turned a small Virginia church of 35 into a Christian's communications empire. At the same time, televangelists like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and Jimmy Swaggart were beginning to be broadcast into millions of American homes via cable television, all warning of the moral decay of the country. Increasingly, evangelicals were eager to take part in the political battles of the day, despite having been raised to avoid politics, while Republicans were desperate to find ways to lure evangelicals into their tent. From the NBC News Election Center in New York, Decision 78. The real turning point came in the 1978 midterm elections, when the conservative activist Paul Weyrich spent heavily to elect several pro-life Republican candidates. Up until this point, Evangelical leaders like Jerry Falwell had barely said a word about abortion as an issue. Instead, the fledgling evangelical political movement in the early 70s was incensed when the IRS changed its rules for religious schools. The IRS wants to revoke the tax exemptions for private schools which discriminate racially in their admissions policies. These white-only private Christian schools sprung up across the South after courts ordered the desegregation of public schools. By the late 1970s, abortion was starting to take over as an issue, as the number of abortions jumped dramatically following the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. This is Jerry Falwell. Abortion is not a Roman Catholic issue. It is a moral issue. It is a theological issue. It is a human rights issue, an issue that concerns the human rights of unborn babies who, by the hundreds of thousands, are being murdered. In the 1978 midterms, Weyrich had evangelical churches swamped with pamphlets on the sin of abortion just ahead of voting. The move worked. Republicans gained a string of new seats. A few months after, Falwell and Weyrich teamed up and launched the Moral Majority. A new political machine that's anti-abortion, anti-ERA, anti-gay rights, and for what he calls a moral America. Moral Majority is not a religious organization. If it were, we could not get 72,000 pastors, which includes uh, Jews, Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, fundamentalists, etc., together without a blood battle. Uh, The fact is that uh, it's political. This project was set up to restore America's traditional Christian morality. We have a threefold primary responsibility. Number one, get people saved. Number two, get them baptized. Number three, get them registered to vote. 
which in practical terms basically means it was mobilizing religious voters against abortion rights and homosexuality. By the 1980 presidential election, the religious right was motivated, if not angry. I'm sick and tired of hearing about all of the radicals and the perverts and the liberals and the leftists and the communists coming out of the closets. It's time for God's people to come out of the closets, out of the churches, and change America. And they galvanized evangelical voters in support of the Republican nominee, Ronald Reagan, which is ironic because he signed the most liberal abortion bill into law while California's governor a decade before, at the same time the moral majority painted the born-again Sunday school teacher Jimmy Carter as the enemy of Christian values. President Carter told by his pollster Pat Cadell that it is all over. You've seen the map, we've looked at the figures, and NBC News now makes its projection for the presidency. Reagan is our projected winner. Reagan would win the 1980 election in a landslide mostly due to the miserable economy and the appearance of Carter's negligence in handling it. But Falwell and other evangelical leaders would claim credit for Reagan's success. The taste of political victory only emboldened them, as the moral majority would move ever closer to the Republican Party. In the years following, evangelicals pretty much marched lockstep with the GOP. But in the early 80s, they were more foot soldiers rather than generals in the political arena. It would take a charismatic televangelist from Virginia to solidify their grip on the grand old party. We are in the midst of a generational war. Boomers just die. Xers, Karens, millennials, entitled brats, Gen Z, ungrateful TikTokers. I'm Carol Costello, a veteran journalist, and I have a new podcast series called I Hate Your Generation. It invites people in different generations to talk frankly, face-to-face, about everything from cancel culture to racial justice to socialism. Contentious, yes, but healing, too. If you don't get your kit or that old guy, I Hate Your Generation is for you. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's available now. In both personality and pedigree, Pat Robertson is a quintessential Southern gentleman, affable, well-bred, with a soft Southern drawl. When I looked at clips from his younger days, Robertson sort of reminds me of what I think the father from Leave it to Beaver was probably like at the office or alone with friends. Born Marion Gordon Robertson in Lexington, Virginia in 1930, his nickname was Pat, which he favored over his birth name. Robertson's father was a U.S. congressman and senator for three decades. Before earning a law degree from Yale in 1955, Robertson served as a Marine officer in Korea. But true to the other side of his Southern gentleman reputation, Robertson was also a self-described hellraiser who liked to drink and have a good time. Still, he married Dee Dee Elmer, a Yale nursing student, and had seemingly built the perfect resume for public office. The path towards a career in politics veered sharply when he failed the New York State bar exam and a business venture selling electronic speakers went bankrupt. By the end of 1955, Robertson, 
now with a wife and young son, was at a crossroads. He turned to religion and enrolled in the biblical seminary in New York. CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, presents the following program. Following graduation, Robertson returned home and purchased a tiny, run-down television station in Portsmouth, Virginia, and began his television ministry. I didn't have any money, but a lot of faith, I suppose. So I got an appointment with David Sarnoff, who was then chairman of the board of RCA, and told him that we needed some help and that we wanted to buy some equipment from him. Well, he looked at me and he said, you don't sound like much of a buyer to me. (laughs) The Christian Broadcasting Network launched in October of 1961. Despite its early financial problems, Robertson proved to be a master marketer and a television pioneer. Now, here's your host, Pat Robertson. By the early 1980s, with the introduction of cable and satellite, CBN and its flagship program, The 700 Club, reached more than 30 million homes in America and around the world. Thank you. Oh, we've got a wonderful audience and a wonderful program. Initially, the program was traditional Christian stuff, a steady stream of sermons and prayers and gospel music. As CBN grew, Robertson emerged as one of the premier voices for Christians and Christian values. By the early 1980s, CBN grew increasingly political. Following the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion, religious conservatives began to meld with political conservatives. As the host of the popular 700 Club, no one did more to visibly merge the two together. The Constitution of the United States is a marvelous document uh, for self-government by Christian people. But the minute you turn the document into the hands of non-Christian people and atheists, they can use it to destroy the very foundation of our society. Day in and day out, Robertson promoted the idea that conservatives were for Jesus, and Jesus was for conservatives. Now, he wasn't the only one doing this. The moral majority led by Jerry Falwell was extremely active as well. Robertson, though, was just the only one with a massive cable TV station at its fingertips. Long before Fox News offered conservatives fair and balanced programming, CBN promoted itself as TV journalism with a different spirit. We wrote the playbook that they used 10 years later. That is Terry Heaton. I know exactly what they're doing because we did the same thing. He's a former executive producer at CBN and was an advisor on Robertson's presidential campaign. Heaton is now a critic of Robertson and has regrets about the way news was presented on CBN. You got to create the idea in people's minds that everybody else in the press is liberal, because only in that way could we present ourselves as an alternative that belongs on the same spectrum with everybody else. The parallel programming of CBN's increasingly political programming was the other guys are liberal and therefore unchristian. Key to our success was convincing people that everybody else was liberal. And frankly, it was pretty easy to do. He didn't, like several other people I spoke to, describe Robertson, even today, as a political animal who just happens to be a Christian televangelist. So long before Robertson officially announced he was running for the White House, the wheels were already in motion for his presidential campaign. From late 1984, we knew that Pat was running for president. And so everything we did, you know, you always had to run it through that filter at the end of the day. In March of 1985, 
The Saturday Evening Post put Robertson on its magazine cover with the headline, CBN's Pat Robertson is the White House next. Public speculation of his presidential aspirations were rampant. Robertson would spend the next few years, with the help of CBN, shaping the mind of his evangelical supporters. Individual Christians are the only ones really, and and Jewish people are the only ones that are qualified. Obviously, you're not saying that there are no other people qualified to be in government or whatever if they aren't Christians or Jews. But what you're saying yeah, is I'm that- saying that. I just said it. <laughs> I believe it. NBC News used this clip during the 1988 primary to demonstrate Robertson's extremism. But this type of message, even if the media and the Beltway political class found it out of bounds, played well with his base of support. Being criticized by those liberals over at NBC News made it resonate all the more with evangelicals, particularly the ones who felt left out and marginalized by the media, by liberals, and by establishment Republican politicians. When Robertson proclaimed that a Christian's mission in politics was to, quote, pulverize the ungodly, observers saw it as a call to arms for evangelicals. The struggle to make a family can be so painful, sometimes you just have to laugh about it. That's why I created IVFU, a podcast about the pain, joy, angst, and love of trying to make a family the new-fashioned way. Join me for uninhibited, honest conversations with patients, doctors, egg donors, adoptive parents, and more. I'm your host, Sam Shaber, singer-songwriter, storyteller, and infertile mama. Find us at IVFUpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream your pods, because it's all about being a family. It was a crowded field of candidates vying for the Republican nomination in 1988. Among those running were former Secretary of State Alexander Haig, Congressman Jack Kemp, former Delaware Governor Pete DuPont, Senate Minority Leader Bob Dole, and televangelist Pat Robertson. They were all chasing the frontrunner, George Herbert Walker Bush. But the sitting vice president was no shoo-in. Bush was seen as a moderate by the emerging religious wing of the GOP, who viewed him as soft on abortion because of his previous support of Planned Parenthood, while Haig and others attacked him for his foreign policy views. Robertson was perhaps the least likely candidate in the field, having never run for office or held a senior government position before. Still, the Southern preacher started the campaign with an important base of support. I thought from the beginning this guy could be a formidable candidate. That is T.R. Reid. He covered Robertson's campaign in 1988 for the Washington Post. He had tens of thousands of religious followers, devoted followers in every state. He was a TV star. He was an attractive, good-looking, well-dressed, articulate guy. He could give a speech, you know, on a moment's notice. Uh, He could, of course, quote the Bible anytime he wanted. Before Robertson officially launched this campaign, he held a rally in 1986 and promised he would run for president if three million people signed a petition, vowing to pray and support his candidacy. Because of the 700 Club and talk radio, which often replayed clips of his show, 
Robertson was known across America, says Mark Geetson, a longtime pro-life Republican activist from Wichita, Kansas. You would have found about as many people would have known who Pat Robertson was at the time as would have known who the president are, who's your state legislator and things like that. He was really quite well known. More than three million people pledged their support. Robertson then hired Mark Nuttall to be his campaign manager. The political operative was perfect for the role, having been one of the first to build links between the establishment Republican Party and evangelicals. I felt called to do it. I thought it was the right thing to do for the country. I thought that Christians should be more active and directed in their efforts. Robertson also hired a young Madison Avenue advertising executive named Connie Snap, who was drawn to the evangelical leader. This isn't just some religious guy on the TV praying that you get healed. I mean, he really was a man of great substance and tremendous depth and breadth. While Robertson started the campaign with millions of supporters and a built-in fundraising network, it was a tough time to be a Christian televangelist making the jump into national politics. We had a bigger problem than George Bush when we started, and that was the completely erroneous perception of Pat Robertson, and it was very negative. Robertson's fellow televangelists were in the news, but for all the wrong reasons. Oral Roberts, the grand old man of TV evangelism, attracted national ridicule after telling his audience that unless his supporters donated $8 million, God would call him home. I need some very quick money, so I'll know when March comes. I won't be taken. I'll get to live. Then, Jim Baker, a former protege of Pat Robertson's, was accused of drugging and raping his secretary, Jessica Hahn. All I could tell you is it certainly was not an affair. Baker paid her a quarter of a million dollars in hush money, despite denying the allegations. At the same time, it turned out Baker's wife, Tammy Faye, had a really bad drug problem, and the couple had an outrageous spending habit. Much to his irritation, Robertson was constantly asked about his fellow televangelists. Even worse, voters often confused him with other evangelical personalities, particularly Jerry Falwell, who, as the leader of the moral majority, turned off many establishment Republicans. They didn't like those people. You know, they thought they were fakes. They thought they were pompous. And they just didn't like them. The best news of all, though, was most people thought they knew Pat Robertson. It wasn't Pat Robertson. That made the problem actually a little easier and a little more solvable. Robertson released a series of promotional videos where he emphasized his secular achievements and role as CEO. Next president of the United States. An extraordinary man. An American success story. These meetings are talking about Pat Robertson. Get the full picture of a man uniquely qualified to be president. Once we showed him some video clips of Pat, the real Pat, they said, oh, well, he's, he looks good. He looks very intellectual. He looks very presidential. In the ads, there was no mention of his religious works in connection to the Christian Broadcasting Network. Instead, Robertson was sold as a businessman, a patriot and a conservative to establishment Republicans who knew little about him. While at the same time, the campaign wanted to attract new people to the nomination process by converting CBN's religious viewers into voters. We thought there's a huge group of people out here, and they tend not to get involved in politics, and yet they complain 
about the way the country's going and some of the things that are happening. So these people need to learn how to get engaged. With a loyal and passionate base of supporters, Robertson shocked his fellow Republicans by raising more than $10 million at the outset of the campaign, besting every other candidate but Bush. I would say so much of our Invisible Army had never visibly participated so significantly in the political process before. When Robertson won the Iowa Straw Poll, months before the first primary contest, evangelicals announced their arrival on the political scene once again. The next morning, the Des Moines Register had a cartoon, which depicted Robertson as the biblical character David and a wounded George Bush lying on the ground as Goliath. Mark Nuttall. Pat won it, and it was a huge shock to the establishment. Who are these people? Where did they come from? How do they organize? Where's their money coming from? And we blindsided them. They had no clue. At the start of the first debate, Robertson was viewed as an oddity and also ran on a stage that was full of some heavy hitters in the world of foreign policy and politics. But when Robertson joined Haig, DuPont, and Kemp and attacked Bush for his support of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with the Soviet Union, Robertson proved he could hold his own. He changed the view point that people had of evangelicals. Was he that much better than Pete DuPont and George Bush and Jack Kemp and you know, Bob Doe? Probably not. But everybody thought he was going to be, uh, you know, a TV evangelist that, did, that didn't know what he was doing up there. And he was as good or better than all of them and therefore exceeded expectations. Following the debate, Robertson was still far from a frontrunner. But slowly he was making the case that he was the conservative alternative to Bush. Religious conservatives were desperate for an alternative. Particularly after Neil Bush, the vice president's son, referred to evangelical Christians in a speech in Iowa as cockroaches crawling from the baseboards of the Bible Belt. The establishment ridicule only helped Robertson. T.R. Reed. He had what we would now call a base of these religious people. And while he he didn't talk about it that much, you know, on, in debates and stuff, when he went to a church, which was almost every day, then he became an evangelical leader. With the slogan, Restore the Greatness of America Through Moral Strength, Robertson mixed Reagan-esque economic policies, lower taxes and less regulation, with moral righteousness. But moral righteousness is a dangerous path to tread in politics. Great religious leader who turned out not to be an honest man. Especially when you've been lying about your own record, which Robertson had. When political reporters dug into Robertson's past, they found a lot. For years, Robertson had lied about his wedding date in an effort to hide the fact that his wife, Dee Dee, was seven months pregnant when they were married. Robertson also claimed to have been a combat veteran, when in reality his father, a U.S. senator, secured him a desk job in Korea during the war. He also claimed to be a lawyer, even though he never passed the bar exam. This was, turned out to be a serious problem for him. The lies dented Robertson's reputation. But when asked about them, Robertson said, quote, this isn't going to have one bit of an impact on me negatively because the people who support me understand forgiveness. By the time the first votes were cast in Iowa in 1988, Robertson's invisible army was primed and ready to show up to restore America's greatness. They were moved on cause and purpose. 
and Pat gave them purpose. The Iowa story is our major business tonight. With a strong organizational network and committed supporters, Robertson shocked the political establishment again. The Pat Robertson performance was uh, impressive uh, and devastatingly so. Robertson finished just behind the winner, Bob Dole, who was from neighboring Kansas and always expected to win. I'm overjoyed at this expression of love and support from the people here in Iowa. We ended up coming in second, a strong second, and we beat a sitting vice president. Oh, my gosh. We were on cloud nine. Until this moment, evangelical Christians had barely been recognized by establishment Republicans. But the party was starting to understand there was a seismic shift happening before their very eyes. All of the candidates began to talk more about social issues and moral values in an effort to woo evangelical voters. Bush was probably dragged the most by this phenomenon, considering his past support for birth control access. To counter this, the vice president opened up about his faith. Heading into the New Hampshire primary, the election conversation turned to the economic situation of the country. But for Robertson, a different conversation materialized. The evangelical world was shocked today by the tearful confession of one of its leading TV preachers, Jimmy Swaggart, that he had sinned against God and family. Fellow televangelist and prominent Robertson backer Jimmy Swaggart was caught with a prostitute. I have sinned against you, my Lord. Robertson stood by Swaggart and faced a barrage of questions about his fellow televangelist. Then, right as he looked like a serious contender for the GOP nomination, Robertson's candidacy imploded. Pat wasn't doing badly uh, until uh, what happened to him was a series of funny facts. Funny facts is how Nuttle describes a series of, let's call them, unprovable accusations. He was not a disciplined candidate. He was always saying dangerous stuff. First, Robertson blamed the Bush campaign for engineering the Swaggart sex scandal to embarrass and undermine his own campaign. But he offered no proof. Robertson also claimed to know the location of American hostages that had been kidnapped in Lebanon years before and suggested that the Reagan administration could have rescued them if it had wanted to. That didn't go over well with President Reagan. Isn't it strange that no one in our administration was ever apprised of that? If he thought that he knew, he kept it to himself. But the big one that really undermined the credibility Robertson had begun to build was when he claimed the Soviet Union had nuclear missiles in Cuba. Pat was just adamant and uh, made that claim and couldn't prove it. The Department of Defense denied it. So did pretty much everyone in Washington, D.C. But I said, this is serious allegations. This would be something that the sitting vice president would know as a former head of the CIA, but also as a sitting vice president. I mean, if he knows it, the government knows it. The unforced errors led to a collapse in the polls. I just very clearly remember all the reporters kind of standing around looking at each other saying, this guy is frying his own campaign right here before our eyes. This all happened just days before the Super Tuesday primaries, when Robertson was positioned to do well in southern states, home to large Christian communities. We had a good organization there. He knew he could do well there. But Robertson refused to let go of his claims and repeatedly called Bush and his campaign sleazy. 
At a time when money was needed the most, financial support collapsed. Our fundraising dropped off not 23%. It was a cliff, a 90-degree cliff. It stopped dead. And we start calling the donors. What's going on? They said, listen, you know, that's part of the Ten Commandments. You don't slander somebody. Now, did he, did, have you got the goods on him or not? And the series of funny facts were absolutely more detrimental to the Christian community than they were the general community. Now, just as a side note, Bush's campaign manager in 1988 was a guy named Lee Atwater. He was known as the king of the political dark arts. In the 80s, Atwater was a partner in a political consulting firm with, get this, Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. You know them from another long-shot campaign, Donald Trump's 2016 presidential run. Both men, of course, have been convicted and sentenced to prison for their numerous illegal activities. So Robertson was up against a pretty ruthless political operator in Lee Atwater. But the televangelist made a series of unforced errors and then got drawn into the muck and off-message, which is what Atwater wanted. By the end of Super Tuesday, the damage and Robertson were done. George Bush has won everything, every place that's had Republicans stamped on it tonight. Uh, has anybody seen Pat Robertson? Well, not much. Bush was the big winner and the presumptive nominee. While Robertson's presidential campaign was essentially over, his impact was not. He would endorse Bush and speak at the Republican National Convention later that summer. Bush was forced to routinely issue stronger and stronger statements against abortion, while his campaign would hire several of Robertson's chief strategists, including Connie Snap, to continue wooing evangelicals. Bush would also pick a young, unknown, and controversial senator from Indiana as his running mate. Why did he choose him? What is it about Dan Quayle that makes him uniquely qualified to stand beside Bush for a race that shows every sign so far of being a very tough one? Quayle, while not an evangelical, was a social conservative and spoke the language of traditional values that appealed to religious voters. He helped not only with evangelicals, but also Catholics and other anti-abortion voters who still had reservations about Bush. Many establishment Republicans questioned the pick. Robertson did not and called Quayle a tremendous choice. Following his failed presidential run, Pat Robertson returned to his ministry at the Christian Broadcasting Network. He may have fallen short in his goal to win the White House. But Marty Cohen, a professor of political science at James Madison University, says, as a movement leader, Robertson and his team came away with something far more valuable. They realized that the best way to influence politics was from the grassroots, from inside the party, taking over the party, nominating their types of candidates. Robertson, along with a young political activist from Georgia, set up a new religious political organization, the Christian Coalition. The Christian Coalition begins uh, with Robertson's donor list and comes out of a meeting that Robertson had with Ralph Reed, in which Robertson asked Reed to set up this grassroots organization that would fight for uh, pro-family evangelical Christians and Catholics uh, throughout all levels of government. Before that, there was Jerry Falwell, there were other guys out there, more majority, talking about these things. But they never provided a national movement. They weren't running for office. Unlike Falwell's moral majority, which was made up of thousands of pastors, rabbis, and priests, the Christian coalition mobilized lay religious activists, 
at the local level. These were the church goers, not the church preachers. They were galvanized by Robertson, you know, but institutionalized into an army, a sophisticated army with training, materials, resources, objectives, accountability, and measurables that they never had before. Throughout his campaign, Robertson not only asked his supporters for their votes, he also encouraged them to get out, to become part of the political process, to run for office. Guess what? They did run for school board and mayor and city council, and they did do that. So all of a sudden, there's a whole network now of elected officials who who do have a lot of the same sort of family values. By the time I'm running the, the congressional committee in the 90s cycle, I've got candidates coming to me as part of their campaign plan on how they're going to fit the evangelicals in. And, and what can I do to energize them? That invisible army was not so invisible anymore. And they became active. These Robertson voters not only became active, they became, over the next decade, the beating heart of the Republican Party. With 75% of evangelicals consistently voting for Republicans. The religious right became a firm part of uh, the Republican Party, and particularly Republican primary politics, because these people turn out, doggone it. If God has chosen a candidate, I'm going to be there to support him. This wave of young Christian political activists refused to compromise and demanded policy purity for Republican candidates, particularly on abortion and other social issues. Within a few years, Republicans scored a major election victory, taking control of the House of Representatives and the Senate for the first time in more than 40 years. The Republican platform in 1994 was pretty simple. Reform America before it heads down the path of financial and moral decay under the newly elected president, Bill Clinton. Newt Gingrich takes over the House of Representatives in 1994, and at least 25% of that vote was born-again evangelicals who came to the party, starting with Pat Robertson, who never had shown up before. We were only six years away from 88 at that point. And, you know, that army was still marching. The influence of evangelicals would only grow. By 2016, they would make up roughly half of all Republican primary voters. Initially, Donald Trump, the candidate, was shunned by most evangelical leaders who preferred Governor Mike Huckabee or Senator Ted Cruz over the casino-owning reality TV star. But evangelical voters quickly coalesced around Trump, drawn to a stark language about the collapse of America and how to make America great again. It turns out many religious voters couldn't care less about Trump's personal and moral values, only that he promoted their policy prescriptions to solve America's moral ills. In hindsight, it's not all that surprising. While Pat Robertson is no Donald Trump, he wasn't without his own flaws as a person, particularly the lying and exaggeration. But Robertson, like Trump, speaks and thinks the way the evangelical movement does. They both understand and promote the victimization that evangelicals feel. And over time, the Republican Party absorbed the evangelical movement, and the evangelical movement became the Republican Party. Pat Robertson legitimized Christians in politics because of their performance, and then he institutionalized the movement as his first leader. 
that changed the face of the Republican Party forever. I would submit to you that what Pat Robertson started in 88 has more legs now than ever because it was never party driven. It was never reliant upon a candidate telling them what they thought. They've always been a movement looking for a candidate. You've been listening to Long Shots. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Martin Cohen, Mark Nuttle, T.R. Reed, Terry Heaton, Connie Snap DeBoard, and Mark Geetson. Long Shots was created by me, Connor Powell, and produced by Gary Scott of Inside Voices. Our sound editor was J.C. Swadek. Sound design was done by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Jake Blue Note for the Long Shots theme song aptly called Linger. And thank you to our social media strategist, Madeline Rosine. Thanks to Starburns Audio for the use of their studios. And a special thanks to the team at Karamis, who built our website at longshotspodcast.com. Karamis is a leader in creative, strategy, and software development. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a newly formed startup, the team at Karamis will get your concept to the market quickly. If you like today's episode, you're in luck, because there are more stories just as bananas as this one. Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening, Leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Good Pods app, and recommend us to a friend. Until next time, I'm Connor Powell, telling you politics has always been nuts. 